Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1, is we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, let me pray real quick, and I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing. We're going to get to work. So if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep it. It's our gift to you. I want you to have a Bible. Acts, chapter 1. Um, let me pray, and we'll get to work. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence that brings healing and transformation and wholeness brings light to our darkness. So God, right now we ask that you would come in a tangible way, shed light upon our darkness, bring healing to those broken areas, make us whole. God, in those places where we're coming undone, and just make your presence known here. God, we thank you for the life that you give us, and we want to have a posture within our hearts that's one of openness to you and all that you want to do. So we commit this time in your hands. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to be doing today is we'll be basically two things. All right. Um, so I've been telling you this past couple of weeks is we're starting a brand new series today through the book of Acts. But we are also concluding a series through the study, the life, uh, and the person of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, what this is going to be, it's going to be less of an introduction into the book of Acts and really more of a conclusion of the series on the Holy Spirit. So regarding the Holy Spirit, we've been taking a look at this over the past several months, looking at various topics. And as I was kind of thinking about closing, I'm like, my goodness, there's a handful of other topics I would have loved to have covered. I was thinking about this. I was talking with a friend of mine. And he was like, you know, the reason why there are so many topics is because really at the end of the day, uh, the Holy Spirit is ubiquitous throughout the entirety of the scripture. I was like, that's exactly it. Like I can spend the rest of my life doing these messages. My wife was talking to me about this. She's like, do you guys have like a time frame where you're going to be closing this thing up? And I'm like, I don't really know. She goes, oh, okay. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm sure probably other people are probably feeling the same way. It's like, wow, we've been just going on and on and on. It's like the Energizer buddy looking at the person, the word of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, at some point, I just had to kind of bring this to a close, and this is where we're going to be closing today. We're looking at today the subject that's, to some degree, a little bit controversial. And uh, we, we, we do that sometimes here. We get into controversial subjects. And I think what you'll find is not going to be that controversial. But it's a subject of a phrase that's typically called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Out of curiosity, how many of you have actually heard at some point in your Christian experience the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit or baptized by the Holy Spirit? Okay, probably most of you guys. Um, if you've never heard of this, I'll hopefully explain it to you. But the point of the matter is, is it's, a, it's a concept within the church that for the most part, at least for the past 100, 150 years or so, has been somewhat controversial. We'll try to understand a little bit why. So the reason why I said this is going to dovetail into the beginning of the look at the study of the book of Acts is because we're going to be launching from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where it launches into this book of Acts, but it also uses the phrase baptism or baptized by the Holy Spirit. So let me read the passage to you, and we'll kind of get our phrase, and then we'll begin to try to understand a little bit about the background of this. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about what type of posture we want to take with regard to this. We'll look at a little bit of the history of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, at least that phrase that we understand it, and then we'll kind of close with some things to consider. So that's a little bit of the outline of things that we'll be taking a look at here this morning. So let's read, and then we'll try to understand a little bit of the background. One. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive after his suffering with many proofs appearing to them until 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So first of all, Luke tells us that Jesus died. He rose again from the dead. But during the time that he rose again, he appears to a lot of other people. And so the point of the matter is, verses 1 through 3, is basically Luke launching this entire uh, new story, which is kind of a 2.0 of his first story, which happens to be the Gospel of Luke. So Luke as well, or the Gospel of Luke, as well as the Book of Acts, is basically a two-part series. This is kind of the sequel to uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke kind of lets us know that. He says, the first book that I had written to this guy, Theophilus, the word Theophilus basically means lover of God. A lot of scholars and theologians try to figure out, is he talking about a person named Theophilus? Others have just suggested he's talking about a general group of people that are called lovers of God. So if you are a lover of God, you are 
Theophilus, all right? You are the one to whom Luke is writing. So he, first of all, tells us, verses 1 through 3, the impact, the importance, if you would, of importance of the resurrection. We'll get more to that in the weeks to come. But for our sake this morning, I'm going to take a look at verses 4 and 5. It says, And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus has already described the promise of the Father, that God is promising something to his disciples. The thing that he's promising is really not a thing. It's a he. It's the Holy Spirit. It's his presence, God's presence. And then he says, which when he said, you heard me, he says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's our phrase, baptism or baptized with the Holy Spirit. The idea of baptism um, is compared in here by Jesus to John's baptism. So if you remember, if you've read the story, you remember a guy named John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer would baptize people in what? All right, not a trick question. What did he baptize them in? Water, right? So the milieu or the stuff that John baptized people in was water. Uh, contrary, Jesus will be baptizing people not into water, but the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. So again, Jesus is basically saying, in not many days from now, speaking to his first century disciples there, he says, not many days from now, I'm going to be baptizing you into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be the stuff, the milieu. I don't like the word stuff because it sort of impersonalizes the Holy Spirit. But the idea is the Holy Spirit will be the substance, the person, the reality, the experience into whom the uh, early church would be baptized into on the day of Pentecost, as we know. So, so there's our phrase. Um, now, I mentioned already that this, in some degree, the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptized with the Holy Spirit, has a little bit, has been a little bit controversial. Part of that, for the most part, has been around the, the more modern way in which we've understood the phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, we should never be, no matter what type of experience you've had, or whatever you think about the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, or baptism of the Holy Spirit, what, what's important to know, first of all, is that this is the Bible phrase. It's in the Bible. Jesus talks about it. It's there in Scripture. It's not something that comes from some crazy-haired evangelist on Christian television. This is an actual Bible phrase, and there's meaning to it. In other words, there is an important understanding that we are to derive from this particular phrase. And that's what I hope to try to do for us this morning, if anything, to maybe blow away some confusion you may have around this phrase, but really more than anything, to bring about an awareness that this is something powerful and profound that Jesus speaks about that is intended to bring about life transformation. So with that being said, I want to jump in to kind of talk a little bit about the posture that we're going to take. So if you think of it this way, what is the posture that we're to have regarding doctrine or certain forms of belief? Uh, what's helpful is there's a guy by the name of Dr. Gary Brashears. He is a professor up at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. He classifies doctrines and beliefs into four categories, which I find a little bit helpful. One, he describes, on the one hand, there are things you should die for. Two, divide, debate. Finally, fourthly, discuss. So, what's an example of something to die for? So let's say, for example, you and your family take a vacation in Libya, because that's where oftentimes you take vacations, and you get abducted by ISIS soldiers. And here they have you in some back room, and they're going to kill you, and they basically say, we're going to kill you if you uh, deny, or if you do not deny the fact, is Jesus Lord? Will you, or would you be willing to die for the concept the reality, the doctrinal truth that Jesus is Lord. Would that be a truth to be willing to die for? That's your question. Yes or no? Would you die for that? All right, one of you would die for that. The rest of you, we're going to give you guys an opportunity to meet Jesus this afternoon. But the point of the matter is, is yes, yes, this is something to die for. Jesus is Lord. We believe that. People have died for that. They've lost their lives because they have refused to recant their belief in the fact that the, Jesus is the Lord. So that's an example of something we die for. So what are some examples of things to divide for, things that have brought about division within the church? Here's one example. 
There's a lot of them that you can think about. Here's one. The subject of authority. How do we derive or understand authority? And this has been a classic division within the church, in the history of the church. So think about Protestant, Roman, Catholic divide. So that basically divide, among other things, but some of the main central ideas that brought about the division there was really a subject of how do we think about Authority. Where do we get our authority to live life and follow God and so on and so forth by? Whereas Roman Catholics would say authority is derived from really, for the most part, three sources. One, Bible. Two, tradition. Three, the Pope. The Pope who sanctions or uh, gives dictates or orders with regard to the three. Whereas Protestants, most of us, I would say by and large, or for the most part, Protestant or part, uh, Protestant informed, we would basically say we, we, we disagree with that. We would say we believe that our main source of authority comes from what we would call scripture. Um, tradition eh, may be helpful. There may be some good stuff about tradition. But at the end of the day, tradition is not how we orient our lives. It's scripture. Um, and certainly we would not necessarily look at the Pope and say he is the basis of our authority. He might say some things that are really awesome, that are really good, you might agree with. But just like anybody else would say something that you would agree with. But at the end of the day, we wouldn't look at our lives and say we orient our lives by every word that comes from the Father, the Pope, or the Church. So we, historically, have divided. There has been a division. Now, sometimes those divisions become bloody and horrible and just despicable in a lot of ways because you have different groups of people launching all sorts of bombs of saying, you know, you're going to hell, we hate you, Jesus hates you, and you're heretics and so on and so forth. It gets pretty bad. But that would be an example of somewhat of a division. Another one is to think about is the idea of debating. What are some examples of things that within the church you can debate over? And I would think along these lines, something along the lines of style of worship, what type of worship is best, organ the best, or a guy playing lead guitar, or drums, and we can debate over those things. We shouldn't necessarily divide the church, the body of Christ, over those things. Uh, Another types of things would be along the lines of end times, what type of viewpoint do some people have, political, social topics. If I were to kind of do a poll right now and ask how many of you guys are actually kind of leaning towards more democratic type of a persuasion politically, I think some of you that would be from the Republican persuasion would be shocked by the overwhelming amount of people that are, to the most part, lean towards that. But the point of the matter is, it's okay to be in a church and debate over certain things. We don't need to necessarily divide over them. So this is another one in which we would, in fact, I would put the subject of the Holy Spirit, as I'm describing it, baptism of the Holy Spirit, into this category. It's okay. We can debate. We can have differing opinions over these things. We don't need to necessarily uh, divide bitterly over these things. And finally, the idea of discuss. Discuss. And what are some examples of things that we can discuss? Things like this could be, you know, whether or not a Christian should watch R-rated movies or Christian music versus secular music or drinking alcohol or can a Christian smoke or smoke a cigar or, uh, you know, who the heck are the Nephilim? These are things that, for the most part, we can discuss these things, all right? And problem is, I oftentimes discover that within church circles, there are people that are constantly trying to push these things up higher. So you have people that come in, they're like, I know who the Nephilim are, and I I will divide the body of Christ over the Nephilim. That, that is a great example of someone who has no wisdom whatsoever. It's just as simple as that. Like pushing these things up the scale to the point, if you're going to be like, I'm going to die over the Nephilim are, that's just ridiculous. All right? So what I would suggest, it's better for us to try to figure out ways to push these things down on the scale and then begin to talk about them. And I would suggest the subject of baptism of the Holy Spirit is on the realm or the category of Debate. We can debate. We can lovingly disagree and debate over these things within our church family and still love each other, still get along, still worship side by side, still have dinner with each other, still pray with one another, still uh, do all the stuff that Christians do and truly, genuinely love one another. You guys understand? You guys following so far? So I'm going to put this in the category of debate. We can discuss, we can uh, describe or try to figure out good ways in which we understand this, but that's where I'm going to put that. So let's begin to uh, find, finish with this little quote that oftentimes you guys have heard of. It's a great little quote. Uh, it's oftentimes attributed to um, Augustine. Uh, it says, in essentials, unity. All right, essential things, we want to have unity over these things. And non-essentials, liberty, meaning we can have a broadness of how we approach certain things over non-essential issues. But in all things, charity. A lot of times people think it's Augustine. Um, I kind of tracked this down a little bit. So it's actually attributed to a guy by the name of Rupertus, Melvinius, all right? It's a great name, so if you are expecting to have children, 
It's a great name, Rupertus. This is circa uh, 1627, somewhere around there. So anyways, the point of the matter is, is that that's the type of posture we want to take. So with that, let's jump in and take a look, look a little bit at the history of this concept of spirit baptism. All right, you guys ready for a little bit of a history lesson? Good, we're going to do it anyhow. Um, first of all, I'll talk a little bit about a group of people that would be called or identified. Uh, a guy by the name of Sam Storms, a uh, uh, scholar, pastor, slash theologian. If you're familiar with the Gospel Coalition, he writes on there a lot. Uh, he's written a lot of really important, great stuff. And this is, I just kind of ripped him off on all this. So anyways, he describes it, breaks it down like this. So on the one hand, you have a group of people that would be identified as what he calls reformed uh, sealers. And what he means by a sealer is they would take the passage where it says the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. In other words, they would see that as sort of a two-stage process. All right, so this you got to become familiar with this just for a moment here. So the first stage is salvation. Jesus saves you. You are born again. You're going to heaven, however you want to describe it. But while you've been saved, there is yet another experience you need to have or you should have. And at some point, maybe later on in your life, you'll have this experience. And so these uh, reformed sealers would be guys like Richard Sibbs, Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, if you're familiar with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. These would be guys that would basically see a second work of God or grace working in your life uh, through this unique movement of the Holy Spirit over your life called uh, the sealing of God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was kind of a big advocate of this as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones died around 1981 or so, something like that. So he's a little bit more recent than all those other guys. Um, the second group of people would be called Wesleyans. And so if you're familiar with John or Charles Wesley, uh, think back several hundred years in American history. These were a group of guys that, kind, uh, that came from England. They started churches. They planted works here. These guys were, I, I love their story. They were probably 19, 20, 21 years old. They started going, was it Oxford? Is it what? Is that it? Oxford. I have one of those uh, schools way back east in uh, America. And they were going to school there, and they met Jesus. It wasn't Oxford. What's it called? Harvard? It's not Harvard. Yale. Yale. Yes, I think it was Yale, actually. Yes. So anyways, these guys were going to school back there, back when it was kind of a divinity school, and I think that's what it was. And so these guys met Jesus. They had this radical conversion to Christ. And they would go around, preach, plant churches, do all these amazing works of grace. God did all sorts of great things about them. These guys lived very uh, strong, devoted lives to Jesus. They'd wake up early in the morning. They'd read the scripture in the Greek. They would go out and preach and evangelize and witness to people. And their lives were so methodical, right? So mapped out, so planned out. Um, some of the people that didn't like them, they basically described them or called them. Like, Those guys are the Methodists. So if you ever wonder, like, where did the name Methodism come from? It actually came from that. These were the guys that launched or started Methodism. So they taught basically a two-part, two-stage series of engagement with God. On one hand, you're saved. Second hand, you have what John Wesley would describe as this movement of God on your life called entire sanctification. So again, Two-part series. Let's think about one part, salvation, you're saved. Second part, at some point later on in your life, you devote your heart to Jesus. Jesus washes over you. You experience this move of God, the sweep of God, the love of God is spread abroad in your heart. You, 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 you devote yourself entirely to God. Uh, John Wesley would describe that as entire sanctification. And this would be guys as well like William Booth or Oswald Chambers. If you're familiar with the uh, Church of the Nazarene, these guys would basically be all part of this similar stream of history. And this kind of gave birth into a third movement I would describe as the Keswick Convention and the Keswick Movement. This was basically a yearly conference that was held in England. It had a lot of great work and movement of God, and uh, it really emphasized this two-part movement of God. So again, they, where they would address is that if you're a Christian, great, it's awesome. What you really need next is this next experience with God. You need a movement of the Holy Spirit upon your life to wash and change you and give you strength and energy to overcome sin, to be a witness for God. So they would emphasize this, and this would be called the Keswick Movement. These would be famous guys like F.B. Meyer, Andrew Murray, R.A. Torrey, A.B. Simpson. Um, R.A. Torrey becomes a really important and significant guy within this movement because R.A. Torrey uh, writes a book or writes a little pamphlet, and he describes it or calls this various type of movement of the Holy Spirit moving in a second way. He calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So again, we begin to be introduced into this phrase. So if you're falling asleep, now time to wake up. We're going to move on to the subject of classical Pentecostalism. 
And what happens in classic Pentecostalism was at around the beginning of the 1900s, I should say even at the end of the 1800s in Wales, there was a move of God. It was called the Welsh Revival. Maybe some of you might be familiar with that. And then that ended up kind of coming over into America. And it began to take root uh, in Topeka, Kansas, but then really it really hit the epicenter of it uh, for worldwide movement of God was in Azusa Street. Yes, uh, Los Angeles, Azusa Street. And so what happened was, in around 1906, this movement of God called the Azusa Street Revival took place. Hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were moved by God. They were having these experiences with the Spirit, some legit, some overboard, some crazy, so on and so forth. But what you cannot deny, and most, almost every historian would affirm, that that launched this global movement. In fact, in the world today, the fastest-growing wing of Christianity happens to be Pentecostalism. You go to Asia, you go to any part in Latin America... Uh, you will, in Africa, the fastest growing wing of the church, bar none, is the Pentecostal wing. It all started in 1906 in Azusa Street, Los Angeles. And so Assemblies of God basically became kind of the main centralizing uh, denomination, if you would, kind of a non-denominational denomination over this larger category that we would call classic Pentecostalism. They would be defined by three important Legs, if you want to think of it this way. On the one hand, they would use the phrase subsequence. Big word, but simply, it just simply means this. Is that the Holy Spirit, uh, God has a movement of the Holy Spirit for your life subsequent to or beyond or past your salvation. So again, this is an emphasis upon, remember I talked about the two-stage. In some ways, it's kind of a two-stage, perhaps more a three-stage. So on the one hand, you are saved, okay, following Next, God does something in your life called sanctification. You are now sanctified. It's kind of borrowing from the Wesleyan Keswick uh, background. The third experience would be the idea of uh, spirit baptism. So you are saved at some other point, subsequent to your salvation. You're sanctified. And thirdly, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And assemblies of God would go as far as to say that the, the evidence, the way that you know that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, then baptized by the Holy Spirit, is that you actually speak in tongues. So that would lead to conditions. The second thing, the conditions they would say is that there are certain things that are prerequisite for you to do. You pray, you raise your hands to God, you expect God to do stuff. So again, to some degree, more or less, these conditions. And thirdly, uh, the idea of initial evidence. And again, they would say the initial evidence would be in the form of speaking in tongues. And we'll get more into this in a second. But the idea they would say is that if you claim to say, I am baptized by the Holy Spirit, but I've never spoken in tongues, they would say, then you're not really baptized with the Holy Spirit. So again, we'll look more at that much moment. That's kind of more classical Pentecostalism. Finally, you have contemporary Christian or charismatic view. And this would take, again, a similar two-stage approach. You're saved. You guys can rehearse it now. What's the next? Sanctified or filled with the Holy Spirit. So saved and then filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what charismatic would basically do. And they would basically describe that even though they have this two-stage doctrine of subsequence, saved, the Holy Spirit, they would then reject conditions, meaning we don't necessarily need certain conditions. The conditions don't need to be right in order for God to do what God wants to do, uh, baptize with the Holy Spirit. And they would also go so far as to say or to repudiate or reject initial evidence. In other words, most charismatics would say we believe in this movement or the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we don't, we don't believe that tongues has to be the main evidence that demonstrates that. You guys follow along so far? Putting you all asleep? Yep. So, Anyways, the point that I would make is that this is a brief history of the idea around the concept of baptism of the Holy Spirit. So each of these groups have some sort of relationship to that. So here's a few things that I want to say regarding uh, the spirit baptism concept. All right? So we'll take a look at a handful of scriptures as we look at this. One is that this idea of two to three stage salvation and baptism or spirit baptism is actually a relatively new doctrine. In other words, the concept of saved, sanctified, filled the Holy Spirit with signs following. This concept of maybe either two or three stage uh, working of the Holy Spirit is relatively new within Christianity. So in other words, over 2,000 years of Christian history, you rarely find much discussion or description of the Spirit moving in these 
two to three type sages. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just simply saying if you look back at the history books of ancient Christians, you know, from 1,500 years ago, rarely do you find them describing the Holy Spirit's work in the same categories you see coming out of, say, within the past, you know, 100, 150 or so years. Second thing is that there is never a command. This is kind of an interesting one. There's never a command in the entire scripture that says, be baptized by the Spirit. It doesn't exist. You would think that based upon the evidence or the information or the, uh, the, the tendency to uh, place such heavy emphasis upon be baptized by the Spirit, you would expect writings from Paul or John or Peter saying, hey, this is the most important thing. After salvation, go get baptized by the Spirit. I'm just not making any statements about it. I'm just simply revealing the fact. There are not commands in the Scripture to go and be baptized by the Spirit. What you do have basically are statements of fact that... Jesus will do something to his followers that is described as baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we are urged or commanded to go seek after. Again, it's just simply not there. The third thing is that the phrase is really only used about six to eight times in the New Testament. And we'll take a look at all of those. You ready? Open your Bibles. We'll look at each one of these. The first three are actually found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, uh, what we call the synoptic gospels. And this is sort of a description of what John is saying that one day Jesus will do. And I'll just mention this real briefly. He says, uh, John says, I will baptize you with water for repentance, uh, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, of whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what John is affirming is that my job is to simply baptize you with water. One day Jesus will come and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he will do something. So both Mark and Luke, and then John also, uh, the book of John carries a very similar tone that is all the same language, a very similar language. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, we had just read this earlier, but again, Jesus makes a statement reaffirming what John had done, reaffirming John's role. John baptizes in the milieu we call water. Jesus is saying, but I'm going to baptize you in my spirit. In other words, uh, this is what I'm going to do for you. It's my role to baptize you in the Spirit. So again, we haven't really answered what this is yet, but we're just simply pointing out the fact that this is the way the Scriptures handle this. And again, just as a kind of an interesting way of reading the Bible, you just got to let the Bible speak to you. You got to let it say what it says, and then we begin to do the hard work of interpreting and asking questions like, what does this mean? Or why is this here? Or why are these words phrased this way. So right now we're just kind of doing the hard work of saying what is the scripture actually affirming or saying. So jump forward to the next slide. Take a look at Acts chapter 10. This is where it gets a little bit more technical. Acts chapter 10 verse 44. Um, this is kind of an interesting story. What was happening in the church. The church was beginning to uh, spread. God was uh, doing great things. The gospel was going out and all sorts of people were receiving uh, the word of God. We're hearing about Jesus, we're getting saved, meeting Christ, being set free, light was dawning in their darkness, their broken lives are being put back together again, however you want to describe it, this is what was happening. But what was happening, that it was, was, that it was going beyond these barriers and boundaries that the New Testament uh, Christians really ever even realized were even there. So for example, what happens in Acts chapter 10 and 11 was Peter gets his vision. So Peter uh, is on this housetop, he's praying, all of a sudden he has his vision in his mind to go kill and eat all of these unclean animals, all right? So think shellfish and lobster and pork sandwiches and all this. And Peter is like given this instruction by God, go eat a lot of pork ribs. And Peter's like, I can't do that, God. Like, I, I've always been told since my youth never to eat unclean food, only to eat kosher. And what God says to him, what I've said is clean, don't call unclean. So what happens, long story short, Peter's invited to come to this guy's house by the name of Cornelius. Now, Cornelius happens to be a centurion, which means he is in charge of, okay, if he's a centurion, uh, it's, how many people would he be in charge of? Just hundred. There you go. You guys are so smart and good looking. So the point of the matter is he's in charge of a hundred soldiers. And so he's an important dude, right? He's a military guy. Peter goes to his house. And not only that, uh, uh, Cornelius is also, ready for this? He's a Gentile. Now that might not be really shocking to us because we read this in our American nice comfort type of his own. But for Peter, this is shocking. Because for Peter to go to the house of a Gentile is shocking. Why is it shocking? 
The simple answer, you ready for this? Peter was a racist. I'm not kidding. He was a racist. All first century Jews, for the most part, were racist. They were nationalistic. They saw Jews and their own nation as being the utmost, the greatest. Anybody who was not Jewish, i.e. a Gentile, was not worthy to even spend time with. They were unclean. They were filthy. They were scum. You don't go hang out with them. You don't eat dinner with them. You don't go to their house. You don't have coffee with them. You don't do anything with them. They are filthy, dirty human beings, subpar to being human. And guess who Peter is sent to go hang out with? That. Peter's like, oh, okay, Lord, are you really sure? God's like, yeah, this is what I'm telling you to do. Peter shows up at his house, and Peter then begins to talk to him about, so Cornelius answers the door, or probably one of his servants answers the door. He's like, tell Peter to come back, and Peter's like, uh, I can just imagine Peter at the threshold of his house. He's just like, uh, fact of the matter is, I nev- I've never been in a Gentile's house. I've never set foot in a house that's unclean. The guy's like, okay, it's actually not unclean. It's really clean. I just washed it. And Peter, in his mind, is like, no, you don't get it. You are, you're, 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 you're a dirtbag. I don't, I don't hang out or associate with these type of people. But God gave me a vision, told me that it's okay, so I'm going to come in. Can you imagine if you're like Cornelius? You're like, that's, that's nice. Thanks. Um, you think I'm a dirtbag and I'm unclean, but you're going to grace me with your presence. You're, you're, you're really kind. But the point of the matter is, Peter then begins to preach to him about Jesus. Cornelius opens up his heart to receive Christ, and it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell. It goes on to say, it says, on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, the, uh, uh, who had come with Peter, they were amazed. So why were they amazed? What was the source of their amazement? Because the gift, the Holy Spirit, was poured out even, get this phrase, even on the Gentiles. This is epoch-changing. This has never happened. Peter is having his mind absolutely blown because he would have never in a million years expected God to show kindness, favor to dirty, scummy, Gentile, unclean people. Guess what God's doing? The very thing that Peter expected would have never happened. He is absolutely blown away because the Holy Spirit is being given as a gift to that which is filthy and unclean. And it says in verse 46, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Acts chapter 11, Peter then goes back to Jerusalem because it starts right into the next story. And Peter, when he gets back to Jerusalem, the people back at Jerusalem, they're shocked. Why are they shocked? Because they are racist just like Peter. And they're like, Peter, we hear rumors you got to stop these rumors. We hear rumors that you've been hanging out in Gentiles' houses. Is that true? Peter's like, yeah, it is true. But God told me to, God gave his spirit. And if God gave his spirit to these people that we would have rejected as common, nationalistic, racist Jews, then who am I to stand in God's way? This has never happened before. Like, again, we can sit here and read this. If anything you hear from me today, just hear this. If you're a Gentile, God's holy presence has been given to you. That's never happened. In 2,000, however many thousands of years of history, it's a 2,000-year-old gift that God has given to us. And that's what Peter is marveling in. So, Acts chapter 10. Very unique story. And again, I would say that this perhaps, out of anything, shows, going back to the one-stage, two-stage thing, because we have a mission which we're trying to accomplish here, to try to understand a little bit about this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. Um, This appears to be a one-stage event. Uh, Cornelius and his household receives Jesus and simultaneously receives the Holy Spirit. In this context, they're speaking in tongues and doing all these other things. So at this context, tongues and some other unique uh, supernatural stuff happen while they are converted. So let's go back a little bit. Actually, go forward one to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Um, In fact, I want to skip that. I want to just go to Acts chapter 8. This is kind of one of the most controversial ones. Acts chapter 8. And this, is, uh, this involves a guy by the name of Philip. Uh, Philip was one of the leaders in the church, so he was not a leader like Peter or John. And uh, he was sent out or went out to this region called Samaria. 
you're familiar with the, the gospel accounts, you know that the Samaritans, I mean, the people who lived in Samaria, were basically viewed as crossbreeds. So Samaritans are long history, basically, long short of it. They were kind of a crossbreed between Jews that had uh, been, had their kind of Judaism hijacked by the Assyrian race of people many, many uh, millennia or a couple of hundred or so years prior to that by the Assyrian reign. So in other words, they had some sort of weird quasi-Judaism. They worshiped God in very unique and weird and strange ways. So for the most part, most Jews would have just simply looked at Samaritans as heretics. And this is one of the reasons why the parable, if you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, is absolutely shocking. It's literally a game changer. So any Jew that would have been hearing that, Jesus basically says, I got a story. This guy, he's a Samaritan, and he's a, he's, he's a good guy showing kindness. That would be equivalent to Jesus showing up today and being like, I got a story. Guess who's the hero of the story? He's an Al-Qaeda terrorist. All right, it's Jihadi John. It'd be equivalent to that. Like We'd be like, what? Jihadi John cannot be a saint. He cannot be the hero of the story. Jesus is blowing minds because he's showing them that the Samaritan actually does something right in the story. But again, all that being said aside, the point is it just does nothing more than to underscore the fact that there were these deeply embedded roots of hatred towards all things Samaritans. And so Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel to these people. They meet Jesus. They overwhelmingly get saved. Rumor gets back to Jerusalem. They're like, what? We heard that the Samaritans are turning to Jesus too. Is that really true? So it says, um, verse 14, then the apostles at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So again, think of this in the context of rumors. We hear rumors. Samarians are coming to know Jesus. And so they sent Peter and John as delegates. And they came down. And they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So again, question, one part or two part? One part, two part. Remember we were talking about those categories? Is it one part or two part scenario? Two part. Two part. They were saved, right? They were saved when Philip came down there, preaches Jesus, they all meet Jesus. So this is, this is a really unique one. In other words, this is where it comes in. When you read the Bible, you're like, it doesn't always it doesn't always fit nicely and neatly in the category. So this kind of raises the question, like, so does this support a Pentecostal, you know, two-part series, you're saved and then later sanctified or filled with the Holy Ghost? Um, and again, um, to help on this, there's a really great scholar, theologian, guy by the name Michael Green, has some really great words to say about this. Again, he would be kind of considered more of a charismatic type of a guy. He's an Anglican priest, scholar, theologian, super Yoda smart. He says this, if the Samaritans had been baptized in the Spirit, Without Peter and John present, right? Without these guys present, then the ancient schism may have continued, which would have created two churches out of the fellowship of which they had with each other. So in other words, the point that he is making is, is that the reason why he believes, the reason why Peter and John were the ones that laid hands on these guys, prayed from, they received the Holy Spirit at the laying on the hands of these apostles was to show that God even has accepted the unacceptable Samaritan. You know what this means for all of us? In short, if, if, if anything, what it means is that there are no limits or boundaries to the love and the grace of God. You understand that? No matter how far you've wandered, no matter how much of a pagan you may think that you become, no matter how broken, filthy, ruined, destroyed, crushed, broken your life may be, you are never out of reach of this God. That's the story basically says that God's spirit is for all who turn to Christ. So, finally, closing, wrap this up here. Fourth thing we'll take a look at, looking down our list, fourth thing we we'll take a look at is that this idea of two to three stage baptism of the spirit can promote what I would describe as a second or lower class of believers. Traditionally, within classic Pentecostalism, um, the idea that there is a two-stage, meaning you're saved, and then you're sanctified, and then you fill the Holy Spirit, let's say, um, followed by speaking in tongues in some context, maybe some of you have been in that context before, where you've been around a group of people and they're all speaking in tongues, but you're not. And some would say, well, it's because you've never received the Holy Spirit. And you're like, I, I, I think I have. Like, I've, I pray it. I trust Jesus. I love God. I want everything God has. But here you are sitting thinking, I've never, never spoken in tongues. I've never felt like chills go down my spine. In other words, your testimony of what's happened in your life does not match the testimony of the person that has this extraordinary experience. You follow what I'm saying? 
And some like to play on that and tend to make you feel like, well, it's because you haven't trusted God enough. It's because you haven't surrendered much of your life. It's because you've got sin in your life. You've got to work hard. You've got to try more. You've got to think more. You've got to pray harder. And at some point, you begin to feel like, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm a failure. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe he loves them, but maybe he doesn't love me. I think it has a tendency to create this second or lower class of believers. In fact, uh, one of my favorite scholars and theologians, a guy by the name of Gordon Fee, who was born and raised within Assemblies of God, is currently in actually good standing, shockingly, with Assemblies of God, is actually repudiated this. He's probably one of the greatest scholars, in my opinion, on, on the planet today. There's you know, a handful of 20 or so really awesome, brilliant scholars. I would put him in that list of around 20. He's an amazing guy. He would actually repudiate this and say this is one of the reasons why he dislikes and repudiates that doctrine that says speaking in tongues must be and is only the, the, the main sign that you've actually been filled with the Holy Spirit because he says that it actually creates this second class or lower class of people of haves, got the Holy Spirit, and have not. If you've ever been around a Christian who might say something along the lines, I've been to a church and they're so spirit-filled, and then they're like, I've been to another church and they're not really spirit-filled. Do you realize how damaging that is? Do you realize that even words like that have this tendency to kind of say, like, like we are the spirit-filled ones and they're not? Do you realize how absolutely in contrast that is to the gospel? It says all are accepted, not because they have this experience, not because they raise their hands. They are accepted on the basis of God's loving grace alone through Jesus by faith. So what that means today is that if you are here today and you're like, I, I love Jesus, I need Jesus, I've never had these wonderful experiences that other people talk about, I feel really distant from God a lot of times, but I know in my heart of hearts, I need him. Do you realize you're part of that family? It doesn't matter what level or plateau or stage you've gotten to, you are accepted by God on his grace alone. That's something to just pause and thank God for because it's his grace, it's his kindness. God doesn't judge people based upon how wonderful experience they are, how loud they sing praise, or how high they raise their hands. Those are all outward expressions that are good. We want to see them. We expect we see them as biblically rooted. But at the end of the day, some of us, we have our hearts, and we just don't, we're not feeling it. And we wonder, we question, does God really love me? Maybe I'm a failure. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm just a second-class person. No, you are not second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Finally, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't in the Old Testament, but there are numerous references to the Holy Spirit's new working that are. So for example, Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up and people are asking him questions. What's going on? Peter says, I'll tell you what's going on. What's happening right now is the Holy Spirit is being poured out. In other words, what Peter is doing is he's tapping into this very, very long backstory of hope that is to come, that God made this promise, that throughout the ages past, he made this promise, that one day my spirit, my dwelling, indwelling presence will be with all people. So the question is, what was going on up to that point? What was going on up to that point was God's presence would come periodically, once in a while, on people's lives. Through the temple, God's presence would be there. Sometimes God's presence would come through a prophet as they proclaim and speak. Sometimes God's presence would come through a priest as he would offer a sacrifice. Predominantly, sometimes God's presence more often would come through a king as he would make a decree or as he would lead in form of justice or like King David. So typically you would see God's presence come through prophets, priests, or kings. And what God had always made this promise that one of these days my indwelling presence will not just be simply for an elected class of people, for Jews only, or for priests only, or for prophets only, or for kings only, but for all people that trust me. My presence will go global. And what Peter is saying is those promises, that backstory that we have hooked our hearts up to with great anticipation and hope, Peter says that day has now arrived, and God's presence is now upon everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. If anything you take away from today, when you wake up tomorrow morning, realize that what you have today is something unique that has never been repeated in history before 2,000 years ago. Never. 
What, what, was, what was there 2000, uh, past 2,000 years ago was that if you wanted to be near God, if you wanted God's presence, you would load up your family, you would figure out a way to find a camel or get a horse, and you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. You would offer your sacrifice. But what Jesus is saying today is that no, today, my indwelling presence will be upon all call upon my name. That's what Peter's saying, is that this is the idea that God is bringing. So, in short, in summary, final closing, think of it this way. In summary, uh, John Wimber kind of put it this way. He's the leader of the vineyard movement. He had some good things to say, but I, I, I love what he had to say here. He says, he describes it as this way. There's one baptism, meaning one baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I would agree with this. One baptism, but there are many fillings that we need. I like that terminology. I think a lot of great scholars and theologians would, would affirm that. Guys like John Piper, uh, guys like Sam Storms, Wayne Grudem. Um, one baptism. Theologically, we want to be accurate with this. One baptism. One baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there are multiple fillings that we have. And he would describe it this way, that we may often have a valid experience, but an invalid label. I love that, because a lot of times, some, what if someone's like, I had this amazing experience with God. I started speaking in tongues. I felt this amazing sweep of God's love over me. It was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would look at that and be like, I, I think it's an invalid label, but a very, very, very valid experience. Again, to me, it's like tomato, tomato. It doesn't matter. What matters at the end of the day is that God wants to do something in us, for us, through us, beyond us. And this is what we want to have our hearts open to. We all, in short, need this life-giving power of God. I'm going to finish with a testimony and then a quote, and I'm done. All right? One, testimony. There's a friend of mine uh, named Chris Lazo. He's a pastor at Reality down in um, Santa Barbara, not too far from here. Um, I was reading a little excerpt from a a testimony that he shared, and I thought it was really valid. I'll just read it to you. Listen to what he has to say. He says, in fact, while I'm saying this, I'm going to have the worship people come on up, and uh, they'll get ready, and then um, we'll close on this. But listen to what he says. He says, I grew up in the church all my life. Right Right now, some of you are like, that's me. Like, that's me. I grew up in the church all my life. He goes on and says, he says, but I was saved around age 19 and 20. He says, I know that I was saved because my heart became alive for the very first time to those things that I heard all my life. I would say that my desires, my allegiances changed at this point. But for the next six years, I would never quite experience that passionate Christianity that some of my friends had. I often backslid, I'd repent, I'd backslide again, never fully grabbing my new identity uh, in Christ as I was still overly concerned with the things of this world and with my life. I genuinely loved God and I wanted to follow him, but I also felt what Paul describes in Romans 7, 19. He says, for the good that I, uh, for I do not do the good that I really want to do, but I practice the evil that I really don't want to do. He says, I never read my Bible. I never prayed. I was more concerned about my life than for God's mission. Again, right there, that might be some of you guys. might be like, that's me. I was brought up in a church. I know about God. Maybe I had some sort of experience where I would say that I'm saved. You maybe genuinely are. But the idea of actually serving God, the idea of being on mission in God's kingdom, living in the light of God's kingdom, it's not even on your radar screen. It's not even on your radar screen. He goes on to say, but there was a group of guys that laid hands on me, and they anointed my head with oil, and they prayed for the Holy Spirit to come upon me. And I can only describe what I felt. It was like being engulfed by the love of the Father. I broke down in tears. That was seven years ago. From that point, my life has never been the same. And here's some of the noticeable and immediate differences. One, my desire for personal holiness increased. He goes on to describe, he says, all these things that used to master my life, uh, in some cases God broke immediately. Uh, habits of sin were broken immediately. Not all of them, he says, but some of them were just broken instantaneously. In that instant, in that moment, God did something to shatter these chains that were binding him. Secondly, he says, I experienced a boldness to witness, to tell people about Jesus. Thirdly, he says, I wanted to know God. He says, never before did I ever read the Bible prior to this moment, but then after this moment, I, I, I devoted my heart, my energies, my time to, to studying, to learning, to knowing who God was by reading his word. So something happened to him in that moment. He would say, I just had people pray for me. I had my heart open. The Holy Spirit, do in me whatever it is that you want to do. Bring to light anything in me that's darkness. And he says, at that moment, my life was changed. And I, and I finished with a quote, um, John Piper, that I think just has a great way of encapsulating all this. He says this, if you are not born again, think of it this way. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, 
this whole thing to you is kind of new, and you're like, it's kind of weird, but it's a little bit attractive. It's cool. If it's a little bit attractive, it's cool. To me, I take that as a sign that life is trying to spring up inside you. It's a really good sign. He says, if you're not born again, the one way to describe your need is that you need to be baptized in the Spirit. That is, you need to be plunged into God's Spirit with the effect that you will be made brand new. But if, on the other hand, you are born again, in other words, you're a Christian, maybe your testimony is similar to Chris, but you are languishing in weakness and fear and defeat, one way to describe what you need is to be immersed Filled in the Spirit. He actually even uses in his original quote here, baptized in the Spirit. He actually uses the phrase baptized in the Spirit. That is, you need a fresh outpouring of Christ, of his Christ-revealing, heart-awakening, sin-defeating, boldness-producing power, every spiritual need that we have before and after conversion is supplied by Christ immersing us in greater degrees of his Holy Spirit. Amen? At the end of the day, we need God's spirit. If you think of it this way, the, the image of creation comes to my mind. God speaks, Holy Spirit comes over all creation, says, and he brooded over the face of the deep, and from the Holy Spirit's brooding, that which is dark is made light. That which is observable as chaos is ordered. What we need today, if there's any darkness, any chaos, any brokenness, any defilement in your life, my suggestion today is we need the Holy Spirit's immersion upon our lives. So what should we do? I think what we should do is have a heart that is open. See, we're also told that we can, we can forfeit, we can withstand God's Spirit, we can push against the things of God, and, and we oftentimes do that just by saying No. What we do is we close off these little parts of our lives. We refuse to become vulnerable because we're like, we know that vulnerability oftentimes almost always leads to some form of suffering, right? If we carry or import that idea of not being vulnerable into our relationship with God, do you realize that's lethal? Because the one being, the one person before whom we must be vulnerable in order to find life is God. The question is, how can we be vulnerable in front of this God? The answer is because we see Christ coming to this world, and he is God in flesh. Who is made vulnerable beyond vulnerability's description. What's more vulnerable than a naked baby in a manger? What is more vulnerable than a man stripped naked and mocked and spit upon, blood running down his face and people mocking him, being betrayed, shunned, turned away from? What is more vulnerable than that. Why did he do that? Because we're told he was empowered by the Spirit for the purpose of bringing life. So my suggestion to us this morning, as we approach God, as we respond, to have a posture that is open, that says, God, it's me. I need you. Shape me, form me, transform me, cleanse me, wash me. We respond by singing, taking communion, and praying. If you're here this morning and there's any of you that you just, this is you, like you know you need somebody to pray for you, there's two things that you can do. You can either, actually three. One, we're going to have some people over off to the cross that would love to just lay hands on you and pray for you. There's nothing weird or abstract about that. It's totally biblical. Secondly, if you're with someone, maybe just ask them to pray for you. That's a little bit too big of a step for you to go over there. Maybe ask someone that you came with and just say, can you pray for me? Thirdly, uh, if you want, you can just come to the front. We've got some rugs in the front. You just want to get on your face before God or just sit down before God and just say, God, here I am. Take my life. Let's, let's open our hearts, our lives, all that we are to this life-giving spirit of God that has been gifted to all who place their confidence in Christ. Let's all stand. Let's sing. Let's respond.